It's good to be back, and uh, I think I didn't have anybody rush me with pitchforks last week, and <laughs> no one came at me with anything, so um, they let me come back for week two as we start with theology proper. Um, in A.W. Tozer's book, The Knowledge of the Holy, um, he quotes Thomas Trahane, who says, as nothing is more easy than to think, so nothing is more difficult than to think well. When we're thinking about God, it's of the utmost importance to think well. And we can only do that through the Holy Spirit. And I wanted to start with that quote because it's, it's, I was reminded of the importance, really, of uh, thinking well uh, about God and, and just what a privilege it is uh, to be here today, to bring this topic uh, to bear for you guys today. Um, so <laughs> I'm up here with, uh, with fear and trepidation as I attempt to bring forth um, six different attributes of God as we look at uh, the, the majestic and awesome God that we serve. Um, so let's, let's go to the Lord in prayers. Almighty Father, we're just humbled as we get to, to come before you. Lord, I just want to acknowledge uh, just a complete dependence on you. Lord, as we um, study your attributes this hour, I pray that you would um, give me the words to speak, Lord, and that you'd keep us from error, and that you would be glorified as we grow in our knowledge of you, Lord, it, so that we might worship you all the more. Amen. <clears throat> like I said, we are on a week two of a three-week series on theology proper. Last week, we um, talked about the importance of studying theology and having a, a right concept and knowledge of God is foundational to our Christian lives. I said last week that true theology leads to true doctrine which leads to true doxology, and that's our goal here, is to get a better understanding of God so that we might truly worship Him. And, and we can't truly worship Him unless we know Him, and we can't truly know Him unless He reveals Himself to us. And so we, last week, we looked at God's clear and, and plain revelation of Himself um, to all men everywhere. God's existence is revealed through creation. It's in, revealed in Scripture and in His incarnate Son, no one can say that they didn't know that there was a God. Paul said in Romans 1 that they are without excuse. And because God has revealed himself, we can know him. And he is an infinite God, and yet he desires a personal relationship with his creation. He desires a personal relationship with you. Um, and the impact uh, that God's existence and his knowability has on us it should, bring us it should bring about a humbleness in our lives as we meditate on God's incomprehensibility, and it brings about a delight in Him, a delight in the study of His Word, a delight in the presence uh, and in getting to behold His beauty. You know, you can meditate on God and His attributes and never exhaust your knowledge of Him, never exhaust even one aspect uh, of, of who He is. And, so, and despite just like the, the mundane day-to-day -day tasks you, know, you face, you can, as you meditate on him and, and keep him in the forefront of your mind, um, we get to boast like Jeremiah boasts or, and calls us to. He says, thus does the Lord. Let's, let, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. And I, the Lord, who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for these things I delight, declares the Lord. And so the last impact we talked about last week was this, the growth and maturity that comes from the knowledge of God. When we're grounded in theology, 
we can walk worthy in a, uh, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him. As mature Christians, when we are studying theology, we are not easily tossed about by the doctrines um, of this world, by cunningness and deceitfulness, and it causes the whole church to grow and to be a better light to the world around it. <clears throat> and again, I want to touch on our, the, as we continue theology proper, revisit the definition. So theology is a study of God, but more particular, theology proper uh, is a study of God the Father. It's a classified as separate from Christology, which is a study of, the, of Christ, and pneumatology, which is a study of the Holy Spirit. So theology proper is like the study of God the Father, and that's what we're focusing on these three weeks. Um, and we're going to be looking at like six different attributes of God. <clears throat> but before we do start, I want to attempt to a, a definition of an attribute of God so that we can, when we're looking through Scripture and we're reading it today... Um, we're able to understand and, and look for those better. And I do, I do want, as we go through the study, to help heighten your awareness of what God's attributes are so that when yourself are studying Scripture or you're listening today, you're able to pick those out. The attributes of God refer to the perfectness of His being, which are declared or revealed to us in Scripture or displayed through His work in creation, providence, and redemption. And these attributes are qualities of the entire Godhead and are permanent. And they're always, they work in perfect harmony uh, with each other. And there are many like, different ways that godly theologians have tried to uh, classify or characterize God's attributes. Um, some of these classifications are like non-moral and moral, greatness and goodness, absolute, relative. I think most commonly for us would be incommunicable and communicable. And then there are other classifications um, where they try to break down God's attributes into four or five different characters, but, but for this lesson, um, I'll be looking at them through the, the, the lens of the incommunicable and communicable attributes. I think that's mostly, like, that's pretty familiar for all of us here. Um, again, this will not be an exhaustive study uh, into each one of God's attributes. We've got you know, an hour, and we're going to go through six. <laughs> um, but if you did want to go through a more uh, in-depth study of the attributes of God, you could pick up Grudem's Systematic Theology or Burkhoff's Systematic Theology, or even like Moody's Handbook, and read through each one of the chapters of Theology Proper, and that would like be a, a, one little step forward into understanding what it is, this theology, the study of uh, God the Father. Um, we talk about the incommunicable and communicable attributes. Uh, we categorize those into the attributes that God um, shares with us. Those are his communicable ones. And those that he does not share with us, the, the incommunicable attributes. Those are the ones that, that, that the incommunicable attributes are those that God has irrespective of humans or creation. A few examples of those would be his independence, his omnipresence, his omniscience, his infiniteness, his, etern his et eternality. Those are attributes of God as he relates in himself. And God is completely perfect and absolutely independent of everything else in creation. He is infinite and eternal, and neither of which are, uh, we are. And he is immutable. He is unchanging. And then since, since Genesis 1, God made man his, in his image, uh, that is, this is one way that we get to reflect back the attributes of God is, and through those communicable attributes, although we can never do that uh, to the full extent that, that God does. Um, so that, you, know, you know that God is love and that, that we can love as well, but not to the same degree that God does. You know, God has all knowledge. Now, 
And we also get to exhibit knowledge, but not all knowledge in the same way that he does. And he shares them with us, never to the full, to the same degree um, that he in his infinite uh, perfection uh, display them. And the first attribute that we're going to come to is God's unity. It's also called the, the simplicity of God, uh, but not simple as in, it's, it's simple as in not complex or composed of parts. Not simple as in easy to understand or unintelligent. That these attributes are not evenly distributed through the Godhead, uh, like they're the sum total of God and, and together they equal one God. The definition is God is not a composite being made up of his attributes. But we do see his attributes of God in different times and emphasized in different ways. Sometimes we think of, of God the Father as the one that has the attribute of wrath or justice, and Jesus has the attribute of compassion, or the Holy Spirit has the attribute of wisdom. You know, with, with, that is true that each one of those display those attributes, you know, but the other members of the Godhead uh, display those perfectly as well. You know, God the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit um, all have the attribute wisdom, justice, and compassion. Um, we also shouldn't think that God sets aside his attributes for a period of time either. So we don't look at the God in the Old Testament as the God that's wrathful and the God in the New Testament as the one that is loving and forgiving. Um, because God is, is eternal and infinite, his justice is eternal and infinite. His love is eternal and infinite. All that God does in the Old Testament and the New Testament as well as today, are consistent with each attribute. These attributes are not an addition to, the, to God's being. John says in his first epistle that God is light in chapter 1. And he says in chapter 4 that God is love. He's not one and then the other, or 15% light and 20% love, and the rest of the percentages would be his other attributes. No, he's in himself, 100% light, 100% love, and all of his attributes, all of them simultaneously. And we shouldn't think that there's this core being of God that has these attributes added on or tacked on like they're external from him because he is eternally perfect. When we think of these attributes of God, his whole being includes all of these attributes at all times. And we shouldn't think that um, one of these attributes is more important than the other. He can't set aside one attribute in an act and that would be contrary to another. Uh, to do that would be inconsistent with this character. And we shouldn't try to triage them as well and to put them in a ranked order of like greatest to least. Um, I think Jason Cruz said in our E4M uh, class two years ago that by, if you elevate grace, sovereignty, or love... The result is you get cheap grace, you get no responsibility in open theism. So that's the, again, if you, if you elevate one of those, if you elevate grace, elevate sovereignty or love, what you end up with is a cheap grace. No responsibility in open theism. We need to guard against that type of thinking. We have to hold the truth that the attributes of God all operate in perfect harmony with one another. He is perfectly omnipotent in his justice, he is perfectly loving in his wrath. He is perfectly wise in his sovereignty. He is unified in all that he is and all that he does. 
And the next attribute that we will look at is, you know, one that falls in the incommunicable uh, category. It's the attribute of aseity, or self-existence, God's self-existence. God does not need us, this is the definition, um, God does not need us or the rest of creation for anything. He is independent in everything, in his decrees, in his virtues, in his works, and causes everything to be dependent on him. And yet we and the rest of creation can glorify him and bring him joy. And that is from both um, Louis Burkhoff and Wayne Grudem. Now the first passage we're going to look at is going to be Exodus 3.14. That, that's going to be, the, this is the, the story of, um, I think many of you are familiar with, um, when Moses is out tending his sheep and all of a sudden he sees this bush that is on fire but it's not burning up. I think naturally that piqued his interest and I think it probably would many of us today. Yeah. And God called Moses by name uh, from the bush and told him to come near, but to take his sandals off because he stands on holy ground. All right, you're in, I think you're intended for the attributes of God. Um, you might be buzzing with that word, that God is a holy God. And God continued to talk to Moses and tell him that he sees the affliction of his people in Egypt and that he will deliver them and bring them to a rich land we see three more of God's attributes. He is omniscient. He knows the suffering of his people. And he is going to, um, his mercy, he's going to redeem them and bring them out. And his goodness in bringing them to this good land. So God tells Moses um, that he will be the one to take the message to the Pharaoh in Egypt. But Moses asked that, uh, this in verse 13. Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. Well, they will ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. This name of God points to the truth that God's existence and his character are self-determined and independent. He is the I am. He is the one who has eternally existed and will eternally exist. You know, he did, um, God has existed perfectly before anything was created. He didn't lack anything in his character or his nature. I think we need to guard against the idea that somehow he was lacking in his love or was lonely, and that's why he created man. Uh, on the contrary, God didn't need to create man for us to serve him or to garner a love from us because he was deficient in some of his character or in the Trinity. I think Paul makes this point perfectly clear in Acts 17, 24 and 5, 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God is independent of man and his works and does not need our love or our worship or our service or anything else from us to be complete. <laughs> everything is his already and he gives mankind breath and everything else. But he causes us to be completely and totally dependent on him. The very breath that you have is a gift of God. But even if God didn't give the good gift of life, or if he had never created the heavens and the earth and all that's in them, he would still be perfect in his love, perfect in his omniscience, perfect in his justice, all within the Trinity. I also want to say that you know, we shouldn't get this idea that because God is independent, that we are worthless or have no meaning. Because, again, God's independent from man. 
the thought that God never needed any of us or anything from creation, and yet he still created it all so that he can have a relationship with him, so that we can have a relationship with him. It's amazing. It's amazing to think that, that God would create all of us so that we might know him. We are created to glorify him because he determined it to be that way and delights and rejoices in us in the way a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, as as Isaiah put it in uh, chapter 62, 3 through 5. We have worth and meaning in life because he gives it to us. So this leads us to our third incommunicable attribute today, which is God's immutability. That's God's unchangeableness. Now, this is a great attribute that I think brings a lot of hope and encouragement because we live in a world that is constantly changing, and it seems like it's changing at a much more rapid pace recently and not in the direction that many of us would hope it would go. We can see a dramatic um, change in the political climate where it seems like every issue is is termed to a political debate and where both sides get uh, heated. I think we can see a saddening change in what is taught in our schools um, across the country, taught to our children. I think even over the past three years, uh, because of COVID, we've seen just the way that um, people attend church. I know that there are a lot of churches where members only uh, participate online, and that is not how God intended it. We know that um, everything changes. It either changes for the good or for the bad, right? Um, But we have a God who never changes. He is perfect in his being, always and forever. James tells us that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation, no variation or shadow due to change. You can view God from any angle, any circumstance, any struggle, and know that you will never see any change in God or his purposes or his promises. You will certainly see different aspects of God through those different circumstances. But God in himself is perfectly constant. If he has given good gifts in the past, we see from James that we can count on the fact that he never changes and will give those gifts in the future. That's why I think this is such an encouraging attribute to meditate on, to really think on. So the definition for God's immutability, I also get from Grudem, is God is unchanging in his being, perfections, purposes, and promises Yet God does act and feel emotions, and he acts and feels differently in response to different situations. All right, I'm going to look at Malachi 3.6 to listen to what God says of himself. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. God said here that he in his being is unchanging. And then because of that, his people will not be consumed. We think about his people who have continually been unfaithful and rejected God's covenant. God, in his divine attribute of immutability, will not go back on his promises to his people and destroy them in judgment. He is faithful to his covenant and to his people in spite of their walking away from him. So all the promises that we have in God are sure as the sun rises because God never changes in what he says he will do and accomplish. Another example is when Balak is trying to get Balaam to curse Israel. 
in Numbers, he ends up giving a blessing instead. God is showing Balak that nothing that Balak can do would cause God to change his mind or his promises towards his people. In chapter 23, uh, God says to Balaam, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said it and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? God cannot go back on his promise or change his mind. He has spoken it and it will be fulfilled. You know, God is also unchanging in his purposes. I think the one that really stuck out to me as I was studying this was Isaiah 46, starting in verse 9. So if you guys want to turn there, we're going to go read through a couple of these verses. Um, In verse 9, God is speaking. He says, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, I will accomplish my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of counsel from a far country, I have spoken, I will bring it to pass. I have purposed it, I will do it. God's purposes will stand because he has spoken it. He's calling his people here transgressors. He's calling them to remember his great character. He points out that there is no one else like him. No one else has his omniscience or his omnipotence to know things from the past as well as the future and to bring them about. Now, I almost stopped there, um, but then I looked at the next two verses we read in 12 and 13. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, who are far from righteousness. I will bring near my salvation. I'm sorry. I will bring near my righteousness. It is not far off. And my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel my glory. You see, God's purpose will not change and cannot change. So he's talking to his people. He's calling them transgressors and stubborn of heart. Yet even when his people uh, are stubborn and, and transgress his law and unfaithful to him, That can't thwart his purpose. We can't mess up so bad that God cannot do a saving work. He is the one that brings about this salvation. I think what a hope that is. What glory glory be to God that he is so patient and kind with us um, that his promises are unchanging even when we sin and, and, and are unfaithful to him. He is unchanging and independent and unified in his being. If we look back on the definition of immutability, that God is unchanging in his being, perfections, purposes, and promises, yet God does act and feel emotions, and he acts and feels differently in response to different situations. The second portion of that definition addresses the question that could be asked, well, if God is unchanging in his purposes and promises, well, why do we pray to God? if he's already planned it out, or will my prayers actually accomplish anything? I want to start by saying yes. <laughs> we should absolutely pray to God uh, for many reasons, one of them being that we're, we're called to. Jesus taught us, and he modeled that for us. Um, if Jesus, who was God, prayed during his time here on earth, how much more do you think we need it? And I'll give two examples from Scripture, though, where God changed because of the circumstances changing. And the first was back in Exodus. When Moses had just come down from the mountain, he was carrying the tablets 
of the law of God. And he saw the people worshiping an idol. He smashed them and went back up to God on the mountain. And so in Exodus 32, this is Moses crying out to the Lord. And then the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I make my mate a great nation out of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. I think God fully did intend to consume his, and his people and start over with Moses if the situation didn't change. God said his intentions are to judge the people right then and there. We, we, read, we read that that happened. But Moses implored and pleaded with God to relent. He brought up the promises that God had made to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob that he would make a great nation of them. Would God have been unjust or unfaithful if he destroyed his people? I think certainly not, because that would be contrary to the rest of his character. But instead, God listened to the appeal made by Moses and did avert his judgment. God changed the outcome, um, but that doesn't mean that God in himself changed or his divine purposes changed. I think we say that his divine intentions are changeable, but his divine decrees are not. So Moses' prayerful petition to God changed the situation and God relented. So we can see his, his mercy and his patience here on display. Um, God is unified, though, in, in all of his attributes, although one is on display more than another. I think Jonah is the other example that we'll use as we look at it. It appears that God changed his intention as the circumstances changed. When God sent Jonah as a messenger to the wicked city of Nineveh, uh, we know that at first he didn't obey and tried to run away. Uh, but God got him back on track with a three-night stay in the lowest of places where he had time to think and to pray and eventually repent. Um, but going through Nineveh, he called out a short but impactful message. I imagine it was dark and dank where he stayed, so he probably didn't have time to prepare a full message. <laughs> but he did have this message, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That was his message. That's what we saw in Scripture, yet in 40 days Nineveh shall be overthrown. He was proclaiming God's judgment on the whole city. And the people, all the way up to the king, believed God, and they repented. And the king said, who knows, maybe God will turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. The people didn't know that God would withhold his judgment if they repented. That's not mentioned in Scripture. But the warning was there, and its intended purpose was to bring about repentance. And when the people repented... In verse 10, it says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So the situation changed, and God did not punish the nation with disaster, but instead showed mercy. So again, like we talked about in Moses with prayer, God himself didn't change. And when God saw that they repented, he didn't change, but he did bring about, uh, he did not bring about the judgment that he intended to do there wasn't repentance. I think it's amazing to see what, what God can do with such a short message like that and bring an entire nation um, to repentance. We see his attributes of God's patience and his mercy, as well as his wrath, um, 
uh, in both situations. All right, now before we go on, I'm going to get a little bit nerdy here to talk about changeableness. Entropy is a, term, a, a thermodynamic term used to describe or measure how much energy is a system that's unavailable to do work. All right, hold on a minute. So entropy is a measure of disorder uh, on the molecular level. Uh, it's described in the second law of thermodynamics, uh, which says the total entropy of a system either increases or remains constant in any spontaneous process, never decreases. Uh, as, or as our kids learned in school, it says heat always goes from a hotter object to a colder object. So in both of these, entropy increases, and we have less and less ability to do work. So the way that God created the world is that the world is tending towards an increase in entropy, which is increasing into disorder. So everything that God's created in his wise, purposeful plan is changing. But we have a God who never changes in all of his being, in all of his purposes, his promises and perfections. The psalmist put it like this in, in Psalm 102. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. You see, the creator of the universe, our God, laid down the foundation of the earth. But it's not eternal. It says that the earth is getting worn out, and it's going to be taken off and changed. The cre the, the, this created world will pass away and it will perish. Uh, but God is the one stable, constant, and will remain the same forever. That last verse brings us so much hope and encouragement in the midst of this ever-changing world. God's people can dwell securely because God never changes. Holiness is the next attribute of God that we're going to be looking at. He communicates to us. <clears throat> And I know I'll not be able to do it full justice with the time that we have today, but we, we are going to look at it. Uh, the definition from Burkhoff is, God is absolute distinct from all his creatures and exalted above them in infinite majesty. And I also want to say that holiness not only includes a separateness from creatures, but also includes that he is completely separated from sin. These would be considered that, that relational and the moral aspects of God's holiness. In a relational sense, God is absolutely distinct and set apart from his creatures, set apart from us. He's not just greater by degrees. And it isn't appropriate to think of like the most holy or pure person um, and then take that little leap to apply that to God, how he is just simply not like us. God's holiness, holiness is infinitely greater than anything we could comprehend. And as we consider this attribute of God, like holiness is one that might be the most central and supreme to God, if I'm permitted to say such a thing. God in his holiness is so awesome, we cannot truly imagine it, uh, this side of heaven, I think. His holiness permeates all that he is and all that he does. In Isaiah 6, we get a glimpse of God's seated on his throne in his holiness. Let me, let me read a few of you, sir few verses from here, and y'all can turn there and follow along. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon his throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, 
With two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. The house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah gets this glimpse into heaven where God is seated on his throne. It's high and lifted up. He is separate even in his throne room. He's being exalted over all. It says the train of his robe, the tail end of his robe, and other translations put it as the hem of his robe. In ancient times, the, the longer the robe, the higher the position, the greater the glory, the greater the splendor that person held. And here, Isaiah sees just the tail end, just the hem of the robe of this majestic and holy one filling the entire temple. How large must the rest of it be? Who else could have such splendor and glory as the holy God of all? Look at even the seraphim that surround the throne in verse 2. They have a total of six wings, it says, which are wings are normally used to fly. But here, two out of the three pairs are used to cover themselves as they flew above God in his holiness and glory. And then they constantly call out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That threefold repetition here is the greatest degree of comparison. This emphasizes just this great degree of God's separateness from his creation. And in verse 4, the trembling of the foundations and the smoke that filled the temple represents God's holiness and his majesty and power. And this harkens back to um, God's display before his people on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. And they were told not to go anywhere near the mountain that God had descended on, not to go and touch it on the penalty of death. All right, you know, back in Isaiah, we see his response of this threefold declaration and this visual representation of God's holiness. And he pronounces a curse on himself and saying, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. He had the right response before the holiness of God. He knows that man cannot be in the presence of the holy God because of his own sinfulness. Sin or any evil cannot be in God's presence. And he was reminded on this display of the Lord's holiness of his own worthiness, of his own unworthiness in the light of God and the judgment that he rightly deserves. He asked, do you view God in this holy and magnified manner? When was the last time you looked on an infinite, thrice holy God and fell to your knees in awe and trembling? It's a good thing to be reminded of, that God is so unlike us in his holiness. <laughs> he's not only separate from his creation in his holiness, he's also morally separate. Just like we saw, sin and evil cannot abide in his presence because God is absolute in his perfection in all that he is and all that he does. He is the highest moral and ethical standard because there's nothing greater or more holy or pure than he is. God in his holiness sets a standard for man to follow. 
In Leviticus 11, God says, lays out these 43 verses of the unclean and the clean animals that they were allowed to eat. And after that, we come to verses 44 and 45, where God says, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourself, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with the swarming things that crawl on the ground. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You, therefore, be holy, for I am holy. This, this base, the, the basis or um, rationale for the regulations of the cleanliness of the animals um, that they could eat is based on the holiness of God. Um, because the Lord is holy, his people are to consecrate themselves and to live separately from the world around them. God is exalted and sets the moral standard, and this all stems from his perfect holiness. And we as believers are called to be holy or set apart because the Lord is holy. He says this in Leviticus 19.2 and as well as uh, 1 Peter 1.15. The followers of God are to live separately from the world. If we are to be like God in this way, we have to have that same disdain and the moral repulsion for sin in our own lives. Hebrews 12.10, when God is talking about discipline, says that through discipline we get to share in his holiness. We tell our kids when we discipline that it is good and it's a grace to them. Without it, they wouldn't want to let go of their sin. I think the same thing for us is when the Lord disciplines us um, for the sin, it helps us to see um, this, to see our sin and to want to separate ourselves from sin and to be more holy like he is holy. Now, I know that there's much more to be said about the holiness of God, and I hope and pray that this has been just a beneficial to look afresh at uh, the attribute of God's holiness he is holy in all of his attributes. We can think that as we go through here, his, his love is holy. His grace is holy. His wrath and his justice are holy. All that God does is holy. As we move on to the next few attributes, I'm going to start with this quote from Jerry Bridges' pamphlet. It says, you can trust God. He says, God is completely sovereign, infinite in wisdom, and perfect in love. God, in his love, always wills what is best for you. In his wisdom, he always knows what is best. And in his sovereignty, he has a power to bring it about. We will try to look a little bit more in depth at each one of these attributes, um, but I'm running out of time, so we're going to have to go quick. <laughs> um, so starting with God's sovereignty, the definition from Grudem says, God's sovereignty is the exercise of his power or rule as a sovereign or king over his creation. To be the sovereign ruler of his creation, he has to be all-powerful, all-knowing, and independent of all. If there were anything at all um, that would be beyond the knowledge of God or one particle like a maverick molecule anywhere in the universe, that, then God would not be sovereign. That would be that one atom outside of God's knowledge or control, and that would break down his sovereignty. And that's why he is all-knowing, all-powerful, and independent from his creation. Psalms, uh, Psalm 115.3 says that our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. The psalmist declares in Psalm 135, 5 and 6, For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and in the deeps. There's no one greater than him. He is above all. He sovereignly exercises his rule and his will anywhere and everywhere. There is nothing and nowhere that God cannot rule. 
I think this is another wonderfully encouraging and comforting attribute of God that we can meditate on. There is nothing that happens that's outside of God's perfect and sovereign will. <clears throat> I think the question then arises, and if, if God is sovereign, then why does evil exist? We're not going to completely dive into the depth of that question, but can say that God in his perfect sovereign will and his wisdom does allow evil to exist. Although he is not the author or creator of evil, God acted in his infinite wisdom by allowing evil to exist, but limiting it in its scope and even its temporary nature. He uses the sinful motives and the actions of men to bring about his plans and even displays his power and glory to other people and nations. Genesis 50:20 is a key verse for the sovereign hand of God over sinful people. At the end of the book in Genesis, um, this is the story of Joseph when it's coming to a conclusion, and his brothers um, sold him into uh, slavery, into Egypt, because of their jealousy and their hatred of him. Um, and this is how Joseph saw it. He saw it all in response to his brothers. He said, as for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. What an amazing theological response to his brothers who hated him so much that they sold him and pretended that he had, was killed. Joseph got to see a bit of God's sovereignty and saw it play out dramatically in his life and the life of those around him, benefiting an entire nation. God is in control over all the affairs of men, good and evil, and we can say with confidence that God only ever does what is in perfect harmony with his character and his attributes. And God as a perfect ruler of everything and all that he does, he does all things according to the counsel of his will, including in salvation. Ephesians 1.11 makes it plain. It says, in him we have attained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. You know, those who have this inheritance are predestined or, or chosen before the foundation of the world before ever having done anything good or bad. And this is done according to the sovereign plan and foreknowledge of God. God demonstrates his authority and his rule over creation by working all things according to the counsel as well. There isn't a panel that he goes to for guidance or a room of counselors giving him opinions on whom he should choose or who not to. God in his perfect Sovereign will elects according to his will. No input uh, from out, any other source outside of God is needed. So, have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? So are you here today and know that you're his child? Well, it's because he sovereignly elected you before the world began. Or are you here today and you're not sure if you're saved or placed your faith in Jesus? Well, you're here today because God sovereignly ordained it. I can't see your heart, um, but you know it and so does God. And God might be working in your heart and drawing you to him because you are one of the, the chosen that he has picked out from before the foundation of the world. You have nothing to offer to God, and I had nothing to other, offer to God other than my sin. But will you believe? Will you commit your life to the sovereign ruler of the Lord? Whether you submit or not, he's still the one in control of all things. I said earlier about the, we shouldn't take the sovereignty of God as though we have no responsibility. We have personal responsibility before the Lord, and we will either submit to him as Lord and Savior, or we'll submit to him before him as righteous judge. 
But we as believers, because we have responsibility, can't sit back and do nothing because God uh, is sovereign and will accomplish his purpose. That can't be our attitude. He has chosen to use fallen people to accomplish his will, and that means following him and being obedient to his commands. Remember what I said earlier, if we hold up one attribute over another and only focus on his sovereignty, then we end up with no responsibility, and we should, that should not be the case for us here. I hope from uh, the Psalms as well as these texts here that we can take comfort in the sovereign hand of God in salvation, um, but also whatever your comes uh, your way. Like we saw in the life of, of Joseph in Genesis, are you suffering from sickness or disease? God and his sovereign will plan that. Are you between jobs or having difficulty at work? God and his sovereign will plan that. Are you walking through difficult family relationships? God and his sovereign will plan that. Remember this, that God is completely sovereign, infinite in wisdom and perfect in love. And God, in his love, always wills what is best for us. In his wisdom, always knows what is best. And in his sovereignty, he has a power to bring it about. Hopefully this whets your appetite and causes you to want to study the scripture yourself more uh, and uh, to see God's sovereign will and his purpose in all things. I think we'll be looking about this more in depth um, next week and it goes into God's divine decrees and his providence. So come, re- come back next week for more of that. Um, but now we're going to be looking at the attribute of God's love. God's love means that God eternally gives himself to others. And there's another common definition of love that we use around here. And it's the love towards others. And it's to love is to give what I have that you need because God wants me to, regardless of how I feel. Now, God in himself is not love to the exclusion of his other attributes. Of God's love does not nullify or override his wrath or his justice. And since love is a part of his attributes, and he is a unified God, his love is eternal and never ends. His love is incomprehensible and can never be fully known or exhausted. His love is infinite and knows no bounds. I think you can see his love displayed in his wrath. You can see his love displayed in his justice. And you can see his love displayed in his mercy and grace. Um, I think I, I know of many who would say that God wouldn't do this or that because they feel like that is not a God or coming from a God of love. I think they tend to elevate God in his love above the other attributes which seem less comfortable or seem like less comfortable to them. Again, we have to guard against holding up this attribute as the highest one, so that others are pushed aside as God acts in the world. I think part of it stems from when we read in 1 John 8, where it says that God is love. They take that as saying that in the same way that God is love, so then love is God, and they elevate love above God, and have love as, as the, a, a God, a, a little g. <laughs> Instead, we see that God is love is his essential attribute of God, Love is something true of God and, and works in his unity because with all of his attributes. You know, per our definition earlier, God's love is eternally giving himself to others. So where else do we see that dis- better displayed than on the cross? If we look at the context around 1 John 4, we see his love manifested in, um, in us and causes us to love as well. So starting in verse 7, he says, Beloved, 
Let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is the love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. See, God is the essence of love. We can know God through his demonstration of this love as seen in the giving of his son to be our substitute and assumed the guilt and punishment that we deserve. This is how God manifests his love to us or puts it on display for all to see. He did this not because we loved him first and this was his response towards our love to him. We didn't deserve it because we earned it. And just like he chooses to show mercy on whom to show mercy, he chooses on those to whom he shows his love. Romans 5.8 and John 3.16 say the same thing. God loved us while we were still sinners, or while we were still his enemies, and showed his love by coming to earth and standing in our place. There can't be a greater display of love. And we put this uh, in the communicable side because we see also in 1 John that uh, when we, were, we are also to show love to others because God has shown it so magnificently to us. In fact, John says if we don't show love, then you don't know God. And this is part of the litmus test for believers. And they ask, do you show love to others? Have you placed someone else's need above yours? Like here are a few ways to show love to others in the body of Calvary. I think right off the bat, I think of Joe and Jane Oliver. I think they're in need, uh, their family's in need of, of meals, prayers, and fellowship. I know Caleb Bartz has uh, given up many hours just spending time with Joe beside his bed. Um, find ways to serve the Olivers and, and the Roland family during this time. I think my wife and I also serve in a toddler room some, some days, which is across the hall from the baby room, and I think we are seeing a growing numbers of little ones around here. <laughs> so there's a lot of ways that you can show your love. You can show the love to the parents, uh, and even giving of your time or your resources to help them out or with their, their families with their little ones. And this could be with a, a meal or time spent with them at the park or even in prayer. Again, speaking of the toddler room and Sunday school, um, you can give of your time an hour in the, during the Sunday school by teaching one of the classes out there. I know we are always in, in need of, of teachers in the Sunday school room, so if you uh, feel the desire to serve that way, you can talk with Marcus Cooper or, or Rod May, and they'd be happy to uh, get you set up. But these aren't the only ways that we can serve and love. Can you sing? You can talk with Kyle Rowland. Can you shake hands and smile at someone as they walk through the door? Find Phil McKenzie. Can you move knobs and adjust volumes? Again, you could talk with Kyle Rowland or Josh or Faith or Wendell. These guys not, could always use, use help. Can you reach out and pray with someone? Talk to anyone here. <laughs> there are always ways that you can show the love of God to others. And this kind of love is summarized. The whole law, as Jesus said to the Sadducees in, in Matthew 22, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. God wants us to be a church that is so overflowing with the love of God that we see manifested in his son that we can't help but want to serve him and to love others. 
All right, the last attribute we're covered today is God's wisdom. The definition from Grudem is God's wisdom means that God always chooses the best goals and the the best means for those goals. Another way to put it from Tozer is wisdom is the ability to devise the perfect ends to achieve those ends by the perfect means. In wisdom, God can see the beginning and the end. He knows where you are now. He knows where he's taking you. And he does that by the best means possible. That doesn't mean the easiest means. And this is different for each one of us. God is working out 10,000 things in each one of our lives. And in God's wisdom, he brings about this beautiful tapestry from just the tangled mess of our lives. And he does that with perfect and flawless precision. Each and every trial, blessing, struggle, sickness, or heartache is known by the all-wise God and is used to draw us to himself. God does all of this because he is the only wise God, as Paul said in Romans. He is wise in how he made all things. As Jeremiah says, that it is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom. And his understanding, he stretched out the heavens. Remember entropy we talked about earlier? It's immeasurable and put in place because of God's wisdom. And he stretched out the billions and billions of stars that we talked about last week according to his understanding. And we can know that because he has also given us his wisdom. And when we, we study the things of this world, we get a glimpse of how his, in his wisdom, he put all things together. He put all things in his place, and he is the one that holds them together. God is the all-wise one, but shares his wisdom with us when we ask. In James 1, 5, it says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. God loves to share his wisdom with us when we ask. Are you suffering through a trial? You can ask God for wisdom to be able to put into practice the, the joy in various trials that he talks about a few verses before. This kind of wisdom can't come from the world, but only through God and his word. And this wisdom is the knowledge of God's plans and purpose for that all things to work together for the good for those who love him. And even as I was writing this last night, I had my computer playing some music and Andrew Peterson's song, um, Romans 11 and a doxology came on and he was singing, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments, how untraceable his paths, who knows the mind of our God and who could bring counsel to him, who has given to God that God should repay for from him, through him and to him is everything. To God be the glory forever and ever. To God be the glory forever. Amen. I think as I've been laying out application, hopefully all through this lesson, I pray that's been helpful. Um, But I wanted to leave with uh, just, I think, one more point of application. I hope that as we have um, seen throughout the numerous scripture passages here, um, that we looked and we see God's attributes can be found on pretty much every page of scripture. It's such a blessing Uh, when you get to read and you ask yourself, what did I learn about God in this passage? And as you stop and think about that for a few minutes, I think you'll begin to see so much more of God. And you can ask, what attributes of God are on display in this text? 
think by having the radar of your heart tuned to his attributes, I'm confident that you'll be amazed as you find about more about God in his word. Now, I was planning on taking a few minutes to go through Exodus 34, 6 uh, through 8 with you today to see what attributes we can pick out. Um, but we, have, we are out of time, so that will be your, uh, your homework for next week as we uh, read about that this week, meditate on that, and we'll come together and look at how God reveals himself. And we see so many attributes. All right, let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you so much for your glorious display of yourself throughout all creation and in your word. Lord, we, we rejoice that we get to, to know you. We see you as the Holy One. Thank you for this time. I pray that we would just grow in our understanding and knowledge of you, that we might worship you all the more. I pray this in your most precious and holy name. Amen.